Okay. I'm Alan Skorsky with Bayless Ebro, and welcome to the Definitive Wrap, where we discuss the news items the mainstream media just won't touch. You know, when we first started this show, we committed ourselves to supporting a pro-conservative, pro-America, pro-Israel agenda. And while being conservative is unambiguous, when it comes to being pro-Israel and pro-America, the meanings can vary based on which side of the political aisle you sit on. Since the rise of J Street and other Jewish leftists who rose to prominence under the Obama administration, a new form of anti-Semitism has taken hold and been normalized in the halls of Congress and on college campuses. With the support of J Street, if not now, Jewish Voice for Peace, the Democrat squad members like Rashida Tlaib and Ilhan Omar have been able to get away with slandering and blood libeling Israel under the guise of, we're just criticizing Israeli policy. On college campuses, it's even worse. Groups like Students for Justice in Palestine harass and intimidate Jewish and pro-Israel students with practically no pushback from college administrators. During the Democrat primaries, activists from If Not Now would stand up and demand that Democrat, Democrat candidates pledge to withhold support from Israel if Israel doesn't comply with their agenda. Besides the ZOA, only a few groups and organizations have been more supportive of Israel and combating college anti-Semitism than Christians United for Israel and the Maccabee Task Force. When people ask, why do Christian Zionists support Israel? The answer is, as I once heard Dennis Prager say, they believe in the Torah more than most Jews do. Today, we are honored to have a very special guest who is a leader in the movement to combat college anti-Semitism. And in just a few minutes, Bela will give David Bragg a proper introduction. Alan, anti-Semitism on campuses has been around long before it was reported in the media. And even before 1984, when the ADL Audit of Anti-Semitic Incidents has tracked anti-Semitic acts on college campuses, students with political aspirations have been subjected to hate mongers, and some have in academic circumstances too. Racists have skillfully exploited schools' commitment to free speech and free exchange of ideas to the extent that school administrators in their idealism and naivete failed to adequately distinguish between debate and name-calling, as in racial slurs, and even extremism. They were also subjected to vandalism, too. And it's remarkable that some Jewish students on those campuses accepted it almost as part of their curriculum, in fact, between 2013 and 2014, when researchers Barry Cosman from the Trinity Institute for the Study of Secularism in Society and Culture and Professor Ariella Kazar conducted their National Demographic of American Jewish College Students, they meant to survey a wide range of topics. They were very surprised to discover that 54% of Jewish students, that's the majority of Jewish students, reported having been subjected or witnessed anti-Semitism on their campus. And yes, other than the ZOA and other Jewish and Zionist organizations, it's true that Christian organizations are supportive of Israel and especially combating anti-Semitism on campus. And that's why I've always been fascinated by the Maccabee Task Force and Christians United for Israel. And so it gives me great honor to formally welcome David Brog, Executive Director of the Maccabee Task Force, Founding Executive Director of Christians United for Israel, and President of the Edmund Burke Foundation, which is focused on building up national conservatism as a movement. 
David, when was the Maccabee Task Force created, and what measures has your organization taken to combat the hate of Jews and criticism of Israel? And also, can you explain to our listening audience the mission of Christians United for Israel, and do those two organizations work hand-in-hand or separately? Well, uh, first of all, thanks for having me on, Alan, Bela. It's a pleasure to be with you both. Uh, that's a big question, Bela. I'll try not to, uh, try not to filibuster. Um, Maccabee Task Force um, was launched by uh, people who I, 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 I believe are the greatest Jewish philanthropists of our time, uh, Sheldon and Miriam Mabelson. Ah. And they noticed something um, uh, that, that was a very important insight. Our students were fighting back against BDS, the movement to boycott, divest from, and sanction Israel. And, and that's just a tactic. They were, our students were fighting a massive campaign to demonize and delegitimize the state of Israel with incredibly limited resources. I mean, for, there are a couple of schools that were very well funded. I mean, Harvard always does well in fundraising, Columbia. Most of our campuses had budgets to support Israel and to fight this campaign of demonization that were maybe $5,000, $6,000. There was, it was extremely limited. Our community, the pro-Israel community was doing very little to help our students on the front lines. And the Adelsons and others decided to change this. And they launched the Maccabee Task Force in 2015. Uh, they honored me by requesting me to come help them. Um, and, and, and we had two challenges, really. Uh, one, uh, they solved, which was the funding challenge. Their generosity basically ended the funding challenge. But challenge two, and the challenge I've worked on for years now with, with, with incredible campus allies, was how do we make sure these funds are used effectively? You know, you just throw in, we know better than anyone, throwing money at a problem doesn't solve it. Right. And so we took our time, even though we had great resources at our disposal, we started off small. And we did something that I think very few people had bothered to do. We went to the people on the front lines. We went directly to the campuses and we asked a question, what works? I mean, I haven't been on these campuses ever and I haven't been on a college campus and I'm ashamed to admit, well, you know, I, I graduated a long time ago. <laughs> Not that long ago, I'm sure. <laughs> well, longer than I care to acknowledge. Um, the people who know best these campuses and know best the culture on these campuses and know best how to push back against the efforts to demonize Israel are the people currently on these campuses fighting these battles day after day. And so rather than come in and say, I, you know, a middle-aged guy uh, knows best how to, how to promote Israel on your campus, let, let, me, let me first admit, I don't know. And let me ask you, we now have strategies. Every campus we're on, we, we provide 20 to 30 strategies that are brilliant, that are effective, that are cutting edge. And I'm very proud to admit not one of these strategies, not one of them was my idea. <laughs> yeah. Once you don't, once you sort of acknowledge your, your ignorance, it opens the door to, to some wisdom. Not one of these ideas was my idea. But when we heard good ideas from the people on the front lines, we agreed to test them start small, test them. Those that worked, we offered to our other campuses as we grew. Those that did not work, we stopped funding. And now, uh, five years in, 
We're on uh, 100 campuses in North America, the United States and Canada, and wow, um, over a dozen campuses uh, in Europe and further abroad. Uh, and what we're doing is offering them the most effective strategies brought to us by our partners that we've tested and that have passed the test, along with the resources to implement them. Because when you have a good strategy, like a trip to Israel uh, for campus leaders, it's one thing to offer the strategy, but if you can't fund it, almost no one will be able to take advantage of it. Let me ask you a question, because this comes down to organization. So I grew up in Detroit. I went to Wayne State University, which at the time in the 80s was the hotbed of Palestinian activism. Um, I was the first pro-Israel student activist there against maybe a dozen pro-Palestinian Muslim socialist organizations. And one thing I noticed, Jewish students primarily go to college to get a degree, to make their parents happy, to make money, to go to parties. Palestinian Muslim students, socialist students, go to college with an agenda. Getting an education is secondary. They are going there active with a plan to uh, just destroy Israel uh, any way they can to grow grassroots activism to harm Israel. You have uh, Palestinian uh, professors, Muslim professors with an agenda. So, I mean, I'm thrilled that you're having success on 100 campuses. That's wonderful. But my concern is, and I'm sure you, you can teach me why uh, I'm mistaken, is that how many Jewish students or how organized are they that, that they're going to college and they're actually going to make battling for Israel as much a priority um, as getting a degree? And I'm not saying that they should, but I know that that's what they are countering when, um, when they're on campus. No, Alan, you're, you're right. One of the greatest challenges we as a community face is twofold. A, it's hard to find pro-Israel students who, who want to support Israel and who want to face the backlash and who want to face the, the attacks that they now face. But secondly, you're right in that, in that most of them have other priorities. They're actually in school to learn and to go make a living. They're not on the six-year plan or the seven-year plan where they can devote time to, to this activism. And that means we as a community have fallen behind. And we've fallen behind, especially in those areas that are quite time-consuming. For example, um, coalition building. We've fallen behind in coalition building because coalition building often means hanging out with students from other student groups, spending time with them, showing up at their meetings and their protests. Uh, students who are these, these anti-Israel activists you mentioned seem to have unlimited time to do exactly that. Our students don't. So we do have a challenge in recruiting and identifying students who are willing to invest some time and who are willing to withstand both the challenges, the attacks, and, and the the hit they take to their study time. But by offering them resources and effective strategies, we help compensate for these liabilities. So for example, one of our most effective strategies is to identify the 20 students on campus who are most influential politically, almost always not Jewish, almost always far left, and bringing them to Israel to see the facts for themselves. When we bring them to Israel, the second most important thing we do is we show them the truth about Israel and show them how at odds this truth is with the anti-Israel narrative they've been fed. That's did, the you second just say, did you just say that you bring far left students to Israel? Thousands of them. And Thousands of them. But just What's your sales pitch to them? Sure. Well, let me circle back, but I just okay. want to stress the second most important thing we do is we show them the reality of Israel. 
The first most important thing we do is we have them on a bus with five pro-Israel activists being together for a week in Israel goes so far to overcoming the liabilities we have when it comes to coalition building that within this concentrated week, they build and develop relationships that are stronger and last longer than the relationships very often others build over the course of years of hanging out. So we, we accomplish both. Our sales pitch to students to join the trip is simply this. You're, you, you're interested in Israel. Very often they're quite critical of Israel. We brought students who have voted for BDS. We have brought students who have been actively anti-Israel. We say to them something very simple. Come and see the reality for yourself. Don't let others tell you what the truth is. Come see it for yourself. And by the way, we bring them not only to Israel, but to the Palestinian Authority too, because otherwise they would never agree to come. We show them both sides. We show them the truth. It's, we know we're doing well, Alan, because guess who, guess who shows up and tells the students we invite not to go on our trip? If well, not now, uh, uh, Jewish Voices for Peace and sometimes J Street to their great shame and discredit. Think about the chutzpah involved in this. Jews who have been to Israel themselves showing up to non-Jews who have never been and saying, I want to deny you this once in a lifetime opportunity. I want to deny you the opportunity to see both sides on the ground for yourself because I insist on being the filter through which you see all things Middle East. That the, the level of chutzpah and nerve and presumption involved in that is so high and so ridiculous that to their credit, most students say, no, thank you. I'm going to go see for myself. Which is very interesting. Um, Jewish students today face anti-Semitism very differently than the anti-Semitism faced in previous generations. While the illogical hate of Jews is the same, now it has to do with Middle East conflict. Oh, yeah. The, look, this, this is the battle of our time. This is the battle of our time, is, is getting administrators, professors, and students to understand that at certain points, criticism of Israel crosses a line into anti-Semitism. Students for Justice in Palestine, JVP, and others want to say that as long as it's just criticism of Israel, it, it can't be anti-Semitic. It's my right to free speech. Just this morning, was it, was it Rashida Tlaib? Uh, responded to the news that Tony Blinken would be appointed Secretary of State or nominated to be Secretary of State by saying, I'm fine with it as long as he doesn't interfere with my First Amendment right, right, to criticize Israel. Well, that's the battle of our times because most criticism of Israel is legitimate and fair. No one knows this better than Israelis who criticize their government daily, hourly. But there are times when a criticism of Israel crosses a line into anti-Semitism these times are identified very well in the IRA definition of anti-Semitism. It's when you demonize Israel. It's when you delegitimize Israel. It's when you hold Israel up to impossible double standards. And we need to fight to make clear that, that these are, in fact, instances of anti-Semitism. Otherwise, we'll find ourselves in a situation where the most prominent and dominant form of anti-Semitism on our campuses isn't even recognized as anti-Semitism. This is the battle that's being fought very much today and will be fought throughout this year. Luckily, more and more campuses seem to be adopting and embracing the IRA definition, which recognizes that these excessive critiques of Israel are anti-Semitic. And some good news from a couple of weeks ago, the first Muslim-majority country, Albania, adopted the IRA definition. And the largest international group of imams, um, as the Global Imam Council, I think it's called, adopted the IRA definition. 
because they might be critical of Israel, but they understand that, that there are points when this just becomes flat out anti-Semitism, when singling out the Jewish state is every bit as bad as singling out Jews. But David, what's interesting, I mean, you're hitting, I mean, at the college level, that's brilliant and, you know, kudos to you for that. I'm looking at simple things like Congress, like when Rashida Tlaib said that, you know, it warmed her heart that her ancestors welcomed Jews from Germany escaping the Holocaust before they were displaced. But we all know that her ancestors did not welcome Jews escaping the Holocaust. Her ancestors threatened the British that if you let the Jews in, we're gonna blow you up. And that was the reason for the British blockade. And not one Jewish Democrat, forget no Democrat, stood up to them and said, this is nonsense. Instead, they all, you know, they got sign language with her comment about how her heart was warmed and which wasn't even the context of what she said. But Chuck Schumer won't stand up. Gerald Nadler won't stand up. So who, who are we using in Washington to say, you know what, we don't need to educate you guys, but at least stand up for the truth. Well, it's a, it's a very good point. And in fact, what we're doing today on college campuses, I very much want to expand beyond college campuses uh, because everything circles back. So when you look at what influences a student on a college campus, you know, to some, some of them might be influenced by their professors, but I, I guarantee you a far larger percentage are influenced by the, the, the media they read and listen to, by the little uh, ideological bubble in which they live. And if we're not reaching the people who control those ideological bubbles, the reporters, the, the media personalities, the young political personalities, then we're gonna have a hard time reaching students and we're gonna have a hard time maintaining a, a proper view of Israel in our government. And so what's worked for us on campus, I'm very hopeful we can take and expand beyond campus uh, because you're right, not enough of that is happening. You know, for years, I've, I've tried to argue that what we see on campus today, we're gonna to see in our politics in a generation. And people resisted that, people pushed back against that. People said, no, no, students grow up and they become more moderate. Well, I was wrong only in that I overestimated how long it would take. What we see on campuses today, we see in our politics within a few years, and we saw it this summer as uh, so many of our cities burn. What's happening on campus now is directly connected to the, progress the progressive base of our Democratic Party. We face the danger of losing one of our two political parties to Israel unless we start pushing back actively and aggressively with that base. David? Uh, you mentioned students being influenced by professors. The anti-Semitism on college campuses goes so far as discriminatory practice against Jewish faculty too. In fact, uh, we're going back a long time ago, but when Wallace W. Atwood, formerly a professor at Harvard, arrived at Clark University to become president in 1920, he brought along not only a desire to hire Harvard graduates, but also the Harvard model of keeping Jewish employees to a minimum. <laughs> well, uh, it, it goes back a long time. Uh, we saw discrimination against Jews in universities uh, back when it was sort of the, uh, what is it, the polite wasp anti-Semitism. Yeah. You know, you can live here, you just can't go to our universities or join our country clubs or, yeah. or join our accounting firms. I mean, my dad remember, remembered that uh, when he was a young accountant, he knew he couldn't apply uh, to the top accounting firms. David, let me ask you a question, because again, I'm just in, so intrigued about what you do with college campuses. So I just want to, I want more questions. I'm going to ask you, you know, more about when you go there, 
who are you working with? Are these students, when they become active, uh, are they forming new pro-Israel organizations? Are they operating under, you know, the Maccabee students for Israel? How, how are you doing it? Well, I would tell you, we're, we're, we made a decision early on. Um, and again, our, my goal was to find a, we, we were blessed with these resources. So how do we use these resources effectively and efficiently? And we had a choice to make. Um, one, we go to the campuses and build our own infrastructure. We create Maccabee chapters with Maccabee staff and Maccabee, and, and Maccabee buildings. Or we work through the existing Jewish and pro-Israel infrastructure on campuses, even though on many campuses, it's an infrastructure with which we don't agree ideologically. Um, we chose the latter path. We decided it would be more, uh, more efficient financially, but also more effective politically to work through the existing Jewish and pro-Israel infrastructure on campuses. Um, why? First of all, they're there. We don't have to fund them, create them, recruit them, build them. They're there. But number two, to the extent we have ideological disagreements with them. Look, some Hillels are fantastic. They're strong and, and, they're, and they're impressive. Other Hillels and other Hillel directors, less so. Um, they're, they're embarrassed about Israel. They're embarrassed to support Israel. But on every campus to which we go, the primary challenge is to map the campus and figure out who are the people who dominate the political debate, get to know them, and build relationships with them on that bus to Israel and otherwise. Almost all of these leaders are left of center. And so ironically, sometimes when we have disagreements with the pro-Israel professionals or pro-Israel students on a campus, the fact that they are further left than we are actually situates them strategically to build the very relationships and follow up on the very relationships we most need. And so we found that there is a real, and this sounds, I feel silly saying it, but there is a, there is a real strength in our diversity. There's a real strength in the fact that the pro-Israel students are both left and right and, 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 and beyond because they, they can legitimately build the relationships we need and the relationships we would not be able to build if we branded ourselves more on the ideological lines to which I belong, to which our donors belong, which are right of center. And so we've been very open in saying we're going to fund our local partners to do what our local partners want, so long as it's supporting the larger goal, the goal that actually unites almost everyone in the pro-Israel community to fight the demonization of Israel, to fight the delegitimization of Israel, to proactively promote Israel. And for their efforts, even a lot of our friends on the left on these campuses are getting attacked by the far left. When we see Hillels that I, I worry, do, can we work together? Are they too far left? When I see them getting attacked by If Not Now, when I see them getting attacked by J Street, I say, yeah, you know what? We're good allies. We might not agree on a lot, but we agree on the big 10 issues of fighting demonization and supporting Israel's right to exist as a Jewish state. And tragically, that's become controversial even within our own community. Can you give us an example? When you take a student to Israel on the tour, um, what the process is, like they're going to Israel first, are they going to the Kotel, are they being marveled by that? Do you take them one day at the Kotel, which is the Western Wall, one day in Ramallah, one day Tel Aviv, one day Bethlehem? What is the, the education process and how do they absorb it, uh, you know, as they're going along? And when they meet people in Ramallah, because I've been to Ramallah myself, do they get more confused or do they say, you know what, we thought a certain thing. I'll give you an example and I'll be quick about this. I was in Ramallah a few years ago on a tour 
And mm -hmm. I saw these magnificent homes. And I asked the tour guide, you know, do you have movie stars here? He said, no, this is our middle class. And then we drove by an area and they go, these are the refugee camps. And I was expecting to see tents or people living in huts. These are apartment buildings that they live in because the rent is cheap. So going back on your experience, how are the students, how are they educated? What are they seeing first? And how are they growing as the tour um, goes further? So, you know, be, because most of the students are not Jewish, we, we don't spend as much time at the Jewish sites as, as let's say a birthright trip would do. Um, but we do make sure they spend a Shabbat in Jerusalem just because it's a wonderful thing to experience. Uh, they do see the Kotel uh, Friday night. They do have typically, and, and by the way, I should add, our partners on the ground, um, the, the, the Hillels with which we work and the student groups with which we work, they design their own itineraries. They often ask us for suggestions. And so again, we share best practices. And because the best practices have been so effective, I think a lot of the itineraries have come to adopt these best practices. And those best practices include uh, uh, going to the Kotel Friday night and then Shabbat dinner in someone's home. Um, but it also includes visiting a lot of sites in Israel that, that stress the things that most interest college students, sites that show the great diversity in Israel and the great tolerance in Israel. So, you know, and, and it all depends on campuses too. So if it's a campus where some of the important student leaders are, are LGBTQ students, so we'll do the rainbow tour of uh, Tel Aviv. Um, we'll visit sites dedicated to, um, to um, coexistence, um, both in Jaffa or up in the Galilee. Uh, they'll visit hospitals uh, up north that are dedicated to you know, treating Arabs, even, even in Syria. Um, they'll visit all sorts of sites like this that I, I, that I would argue show the real heart of Israel, because one of the two myths we need to confront uh, on these trips is the myth that Israel is some racist apartheid country that, that just longs for war and conflict. So, you know, just walking down the street in Tel Aviv shows you how ridiculous that myth is. But we're also intentional in showing coexistence and uh, showing the diversity in, in the multicultural, multiculturalism of Israel. The second myth that we need to confront is also ridiculous. And it's the myth that somehow the Palestinians are this unique race of Gandhis and Martin Luther King Juniors. There are wonderful Palestinians who do one piece, but of course there are, there are many Palestinians, unfortunately many in government, um, that not only aren't interested in peace, but continue to fund terrorism in Israel, to continue to reward terrorists in Israel, to continue to celebrate the terrorists you know, in, their, in, their, in their education systems and their namings. And so meeting with Palestinians very often gets this across because these students are intelligent and they'll ask questions like, hey, we were just down in Sderot. We understand that, that Hamas is sending missiles over into Israel, attacking communities. What do you say about that? And when PA officials refuse to condemn it, they take note. So look, we can't orchestrate these things and we can't control these things. But by doing our best to create a realistic time in Israel, where realistically they're meeting Israelis and Palestinians, almost always, can't say always because we can't control it and we can't orchestrate it, but almost always these students come back with the same reaction, which is at a minimum, they say, wow, this is much more complex than I realized. I guess I shouldn't support efforts to single out and scapegoat Israel the way BDS does. That reaction, I'd say, is, a, is a, at least a 95% of the time reaction. 
And very often, it's hard to say 30% of the time, 40% of the time, it goes further than that. And these students say, I saw something in Israel that I admire. I saw in Israel a people facing very difficult circumstances and very great dangers, and yet honoring my progressive values, creating a safe place for, for, for gay and straight, for Jew and Arab, for Muslim and Jew, and for people of a diversity of backgrounds from around the world. I saw a place where people of color are airlifted to freedom. The only time in history when Africans have been mass, you know, moved in masses, not to slavery, but to freedom. I saw a place where people of color, Jews from the Arab Muslim world, had been integrated fully and now dominate so much of society. And so they see modeled in Israel the highest of their progressive values. And so they come back not only saying it's more complex than I thought, but also saying, I want to be involved and I want to stay connected to the Jewish community and to the pro-Israel community. And I want to stay connected to this thing I saw in Israel that I find very attractive. David, it's just so fascinating. And what a treat it is for these students. My question is, uh, what, if any, is the screening process for the students to qualify for this trip? So we give a challenge to our partners on the ground, which is a difficult challenge. And the challenge is we want you to go after the people who dominate the campus political culture, even if they're critical of Israel, even if they've supported BDS, provided that it's not the hatred of Israel or opposition to Israel is not central to their being. So I'll make a distinction here. Someone who belongs to Students for Justice in Palestine and all they do is oppose Israel, you're probably never going to be able to change their mind. And if you bring them, not only do you waste the seat because you're not going to change their mind, but you give them an opportunity to try to poison others' objective experience. But let's say you have someone in the Muslim Student Association who's not joined Students for Justice in Palestine and who's been critical of Israel, but only because from what they've heard, Israel's an apartheid country and we all should fight apartheid. Right. If you sense that their opposition to Israel is that shallow and that thin and that mistaken, then we say, sure, bring them because mm -hmm. the reality will change them. And sure enough, that distinction has worked by bringing people who, who are critical of Israel, but not, not, not based on any deeply held understanding or belief, but on a superficial and thin myth, we almost always change their minds. But I should say, by being ambitious, some of our partners have made mistakes. Some of our partners have brought people on the trip they thought were open-minded who turned out not to be open-minded. I, I couldn't have said this two years ago, but I, unfortunately I can say it now. We have brought people to Israel who've come back still supporting BDS, still opposing Israel but it's been a very, it's been a handful. Uh, and it's the price we pay for being ambitious. Right. Now, it's interesting, you just mentioned the BDS movement. Um, that was uh, once upon a time, a little known movement that has grown since, 2000, uh, since its 2005 launch in, in such a way that it took root on US college campuses to a very concerning degree. Uh, for our listening audience who don't know what BDS stands for, it's the Boycott, Divest, and Sanction move Movement, which speaks for itself. And their goal is the elimination of the Jewish state. David, we're running out of time, but can you tell us what can citizens of the United States, namely students, do in conjunction with your extraordinary organizations and phenomenal work? Well, I appreciate it. Um, uh, luckily, like I said, we're, we're well-funded by, by the Adelsons, but... The Adelsons like partners in their work. Uh, they like to work with others. And so what I'd say to anyone is if, if there's a campus you're worried about, probably a campus we're already on. We went to a lot of the bad campuses at the outset. But we're always looking for partners to join us in, in bringing on a new campus and helping us to fund it. 
Um, you know, but, 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 but beyond funding and beyond uh, connecting us to campuses and students, the work we do on the campuses really has to be owned and done by the students on that campus, by the professionals who live on that campus. It's very hard for outsiders to come in from the outside and have an impact on a campus, including myself. Um, I do very little speaking on campuses. I do very little appearing on campuses because I found that uh, the people they need to hear from are people who are organic to that campus um, or people who might shatter some stereotypes. It's good to have someone who's a supporter of Israel who doesn't fit, you know, the typical box of, of, of a Jewish American yeah. to support Israel. So we need, we need partners. We need people to connect us to students on the ground, to professionals on the ground. Um, and then one day, like I say, we intend to grow this beyond campuses. And that's where we need to be connected to up and coming political leaders who might be left far left on city councils and the state government. You know, we just had a guy named Richie Torres elected to Congress from, from New York, right? Richie mm -hmm. Torres is African-American, Hispanic, and gay, and extremely pro-Israel. Why? Because he understands in a way others don't that Israel is, 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 is the manifestation of his progressive values in a very difficult and dangerous environment. He understands enough about Israel to see the difference between this anti-Israel myth that dominates the left and the Israel reality that appeals to a progressive like Richie Torres. We need a hundred, a thousand more Richie Torreses. Um, and so we need to identify them when they're young and rising and to show them the truth and to show them that there will be, there'll be people who support them in their walk uh, sharing the truth. David, we've got a million more questions for you. So this is our invitation. We're, we are going to have you back, please God, because there's just so much more to discuss and you, you know, for you to teach us about. So yeah. I know, Bail, we're going to, you know, wish yeah, you we're a running very out, happy, we're running out of time. Thank you so much, Mr. Brock. Happy Thanksgiving. It incredible. It was so incredible. Thank you. And please join us again. It, this, this, this is so informative and so, so, so important. And your work is just so extraordinary. And best of luck to you. And thank, uh, thank you to our listening audience. And on behalf of Alan and myself, thank you, everybody. Thank you for having me. Look forward to seeing you again. Happy Thanksgiving. Oh, you happy Thanksgiving. Bye-bye. <laughs>